And my argument is that to a certain extent, as, as rich countries move ahead, and I have in mind especially uh, Europe, which is a setting that I know best, uh, as they move ahead with the green transition, they're going to put in place barriers, uh, say trade uh, barriers, uh, or a, a check at the border in terms of the carbon content of many of the products that they import. Um, and these are large markets, and it's not only the only Europe that is doing this, but other jurisdictions are looking at that as well. And there were discussions, for example, at the G7 on these type of measures. And that was Alessio Terzi, economist at the European Commission's Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs. Welcome to the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, Carolina Pan, Head of Research at Power for All. Power for All is a global campaign of over 300 partners around the world working to, together to accelerate universal electrification with renewable energy. You can learn more about Power for All on our website, powerforall.org, all of the socials, and of course, by subscribing to our newsletter. As a 501c charitable organization, Power for All depends on the generosity of listeners like you. Please consider supporting our work at powerforall.org donate. Our guest today is Alessio Terzi, who is a dear friend, but most importantly, a highly accomplished economist. Alessio is currently an economist at the European Commission's Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs. He's also a lecturer at Sciences Po and an author of the highly praised book, Growth for Good, Reshaping Capitalism to Save Humanity from Climate Catastrophe, which is definitely worth the hype, and it's going to be our topic for discussion today. Alessio also holds a PhD in economics from the Hertie School, and he did a postdoc as a Fulbright Scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School, which is actually where we met. Hi, Alessio. Thanks so much for joining us today. So we actually met as postdocs, and at that time, which was not that long ago. None of us was working on the on climate or environmental issues. And look at us now. So the obvious question for me is what motivated you to write this book and change your focus from uh, just growth, which is what you've always studied, to green growth or growth for good? That's a, that's a great question, uh, Caro. Um, I feel like uh, a big role was obviously uh, played by the fact that we are living in, in times where climate change is becoming more and more prominent and addressing it is becoming more of a priority. But in my case, perhaps the, really the, the tipping point was, uh, was the pandemic. And this book is very much a pandemic product or a pandemic brainchild. <laughs> And um, and in that setting, when everything was going wrong, where the economy was collapsing, uh, consumption was shrinking, GDP was shrinking, and so on, people started looking for silver linings. And the only silver lining that could be seen uh, was the fact that, in a way, environmental indicators were improving, and CO2 emissions were dropping, and uh, uh, you know, air quality was improving, and quality of water was improving, and so on. And and, uh, and so that sort of started or sparked a reflection for me on what is the relationship between the economy or economic growth and nature, and can the two be reconciled outside of, let's say, a pandemic setting. Interesting. And so 
I mean, after reading the book, which by the way, I loved, um, you know, the, the, the main argument I got is that in order for us to avoid a climate catastrophe, we don't need to actually shrink our economy, which is with this kind of pandemic behavior sort of implied or degrow, as many believe, but rather accelerate green growth. And that for that, capitalism is the only way through which it can be achieved, but it needs to be combined with the right policies that help us change the current direction in which capitalism is going. So I have a couple of questions. The first one is, can you actually describe what you mean by green growth um, for our listeners that might not have read your book yet? And then if you can dig deeper into this main argument of your book. So the, the, the book focuses primarily on climate change as, as, the, as the biggest challenge environmental challenge that we have ahead of us. Uh, and so in my setting, uh, greening growth is particularly focused on, let's say, decoupling uh, economic growth from, uh, from greenhouse gas emissions. And so whether we can stop, let's say, burning fossil fuels uh, and at the same time uh, continue growing um, our, our economy. But of course, the, the challenges are wider and the points I try to make are wider uh, in the sense that they also apply to the environment more broadly, uh, to biodiversity uh, and, and so on, and, and all the, the challenges that we may, that we may have. Could, could we also understand green growth as investment in renewables? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, investment is a big component of, of fostering economic growth and uh, an essential element of capitalism. And so absolutely investing in renewables is, is one of the ways in which I, I see uh, growth becoming green, let's say. Great. Um, and so regarding the fact that we need, as we were saying, kind of to change this direction in which capitalism is currently going, mm -hmm. right? So you... You argue that it doesn't necessarily lead to a climate catastrophe, but um, but it needs to be reshaped. Um, so the question is, can you can you dig deeper into this and can you explain why can't the system be left to its own means, like the, the invisible mm -hmm. hand for us economists? That is, you know, uh, we grew up with this idea that markets self-regulate and that everybody works um, uh, in their own interests, but you know there, there are good outcomes out of that. Why is it not the case? Um, so what I try to do in the book, and the book is is that uh, is written for not necessarily with economists in mind, or not primarily with economists in mind. It's a book that really tries to explain a lot of the concepts and understand better. So it was a journey also for me to understand better what we need, what we mean with capitalism. What we mean with economic growth? Why do we think it is uh, useful for a variety of things? Um, so it, it was an, an open journey um, in that respect. And, and in understand one of the chapters is devoting to, to really analyzing the mechanics of, of capitalism. Let's say you are you're summarizing with Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand to a certain extent or the, or the price mechanism. Um, and what I try to say there is that um, you know, many of the elements of, of environmental or 
or climate change in general uh, are sort of operating outside of the markets, at least for the time being. Uh, in our jargon, they would be called externalities. But when we have situations like this, uh, it is not necessarily that markets are going to guarantee the best uh, outcome, at least un unless certain policies are put in place. Uh, and that is a bit the, the, the sense of it. And, and that is, let's say, a common uh, belief also among, uh, among economists. And the second point I try to say is that in a way we're trying to accelerate uh, innovation and that when you have uh, uh, you know, a set of technologies are, that are built into the economy, and we've been using fossil fuels for 200 years, so that is definitely a technology that is inbuilt into our economies right now, and you want to accelerate the transition out of it, you have some lock-ins, uh, some technological lock-in effects. And so there as well, uh, it is not clear that the market alone would, uh, would get out of this uh, uh, bad equilibrium and, uh, and go to the better equilibrium. Uh, and so you again, you need uh, you might need some uh, some correction factors uh, there as well. So, like in many other circumstances, we need to help the markets uh, get in the right course. And and could you give us an example of what that would look like in practice? Because obviously, like people reading the book, I think are always going to think of like. Is this, is this actually doable? Is this credible? Can this work? Has this been done before? So could you give an example of what this would imply in practice? Yeah, I think um, the book has been written, I mean, it kind of shows my double or triple personality in the sense that I, I was in academia and I still have a foot in academia being a lecturer. I was in a think tank and I am in the policy world, of course. Um, but... Um, but in a way, so I, it, I try to combine the, the theory and the practice. And the beginning of the book in particular takes more of a historical uh, overview. And, and, uh, and really, I was mentioning before, it looks at what capitalism is in broad terms. So it, it's more abstract in a way. But the book is also very practical. And towards the end of it, you, you will have realized, uh, as you were reading it, Caro, that it, it drills down into what are the practical recommendations, and in particular, how do we um, organize this transition in a way that is feasible? And feasible including not only technological feasibility, but also political feasibility uh, across different countries as well, because obviously we're talking of a global uh, challenge. And so that's how I come up with, uh, with a set of, of recommendations some are policy recommendations, some are, are the classic policy recommendations in terms of, carbon, of what governments can do, and it can be carbon pricing, it can be something more, let's say, on investing in advanced technology research, which is obviously something we're seeing the US move ahead on uh, recently. You can think of tax credits, you can think of investment, uh, large public investments uh, of the sort of, you know, setting up uh, the infrastructure for uh, electric mobility, uh, but there is a lot more, and there's a lot more in particular because the point I try to make is that it's not only a government agenda, and that actually there's a lot that businesses can do as well, and there's a lot that consumers can do as well, and only this type of uh, whole-of-nation approach can uh, help us reach uh, the objective that we've set for ourselves, and so try to reach uh, carbon neutrality. Uh, soon uh, by around mid-century, depending on the country. 
Right. And I, I mean, I, I was very thrilled to actually see that you you had policy recommendations or overall recommendations um, in your book and you didn't just end with, okay, like this is the nature of the problem and this is in theory what needs to happen. Um, you also speak about all of these examples that are currently happening, which is um, interesting because it means that in some way we seem to be moving into the right direction. There's a lot of description of certain policies being done in um, the developed world or the most advanced countries, which I'm going to get to um, in a bit. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to, um, you know, dig a, a, a little bit deeper into this, um, you know, regulation need for intervention and and why it does not necessarily conflict with capitalism. So you give a very nice metaphor. It's a plumbing metaphor in your book. So um, which which is good for understanding this and in, in, in to explain, you know, this relationship between growth and progress and well-being. So can you share this with the audience? Yeah. So one of the let's say, learning experiences for me while writing this book is that I've tried to really um, get rid of my preconceptions as an economist, as somebody has been working in a place called the Growth Lab uh, among economists and so surrounded by one type of of, of research and, and methodology and, and really reading different literatures. And, and my impression is that, uh, especially in heterodox, more heterodox uh, uh, types of literatures in in economics, but also in sociology, in political uh, sciences, there is this idea of giving a lot of agency to capitalism, seen as the father or mother of, of all evil um, that is doing these these horrible things. Depending on on the topic, it can be uh, inequality, it can be uh, colonialism, and in our setting, it can be destroying the environment. And the reason why I was trying to use a metaphor, uh, a plumbing metaphor, uh, in particular, the one that you picked up, is to try and, and give an idea that it is less of this uh, evil monster with agency and more something that organizes uh, society around some certain incentives. And so if, uh, in a plumbing uh, type of metaphor, if... Uh, if water, if you're using the water tap and you forget it open, and uh, and your house gets uh, uh, dumped, um, swamped, sorry, then it's not the fault of the water system. And similarly, if you need water in the garden rather than on the second floor, you've got to you know uh, around and, and open the uh, the water in the garden. So it is more a system that doesn't necessarily have agency, but it's rather how you use it for good or bad. <laughs> Uh, purposes in achieving uh, in achieving things, and uh, related to the second part of your question, and, and so how does it relate to uh, well-being and progress and, and innovation? Again, part of these um, more heterodox literatures uh, you were mentioning, degrowth earlier or eco-socialism, uh, particularly when talking about advanced economies. They sort of say not only do we need to shrink our economy because uh, because there is an environmental concern and that's a priority right now, but they also say this is going to be good. 
Um, so they say, you know, at the end of the day, these countries have already reached high level of wealth and therefore uh, poverty is not a concern and therefore you already have what you need. And so well-being has already been guaranteed and therefore it's all this growth is for nothing. And it's not useful. And, and so to try and reflect on, on whether there is something to this critique or not, and if, if not, why not, uh, it sort of forced me to understand the relationship between economic growth, capitalism, and, and uh, well-being broadly defined, or progress and innovation. And, and to make a long story short, um, what I try to say is that, you know, capitalism for good or bad, it surely has several, uh, many uh, negative sides to it, but it does, it is an efficient machinery at fostering innovation. And generally innovation, particularly under certain conditions, fosters, uh, is used to achieve goals and improve well-being. And so that's what it's good at. That's it. And that's why also you might want to uh, reshape it or reorient it if the challenge of the moment is that you need innovation to decarbonize the economy, then capitalism can be a useful ally, but you've got to orient it in that direction and that will improve well-being in the process. It will improve uh, air quality, uh, for example, uh, among other side uh, co-benefits. And we're going to see much more of that going forward. Right. And this is at the very core of your argument, right? Because the idea is that abandoning growth would mean abandoning all of the progress we've made so far, you know, throughout all of these centuries and abandoning well-being too, correct? Yeah, in a way, I try to take more of a dynamic perspective. And so to, I would argue that it is not a matter of saying, you know, we've achieved these things. Uh, be it advanced uh, healthcare, uh, uh, housing for many, or heating, or access to water, and so on, and therefore, um, I try to resist this logic, and to make this argument, I also take more of a historical perspective in saying, you know, we look rich with respect to the past, uh, but probably if 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 we were if people uh, 200 years from now were to look back on our condition they would probably say you know poor people in 2022 their life expectancy was uh, I don't know 80 years uh, of age in in Europe for example and instead uh, instead of 150 in uh, in a century from now and the same argument could be made across a variety of things and so it is a matter of taking a historical and dynamic perspective rather than saying, you know, we've reached an end point, an end of history uh, sort of uh, moment and therefore uh, the rich have, have uh, everything and they've reached the end of, uh, the end of uh, their quest for more. Um, and that's a bit the link also with progress. I mean, progress to me, and I make the argument in the book, is, is a bit this idea or this belief that the future can be better than the past and that this doesn't depend on some external force, rather it depends on uh, on investing in the right things and, and making an effort and discovering new things. And so it gives a human agency to to the future and it has this element of self-determination as humanity right. as a whole. Right. And so let's say we're convinced that green growth is the way to go, right? I was very convinced by chapter five, I have to say. So what do we do now? So what's the plan? And I, I know you've 
briefly touched base on this before on some of the steps, but if you, if you were to give me a series of like necessary steps, right, as a, as a strategy for climate mitigation, what would those be very briefly? Um, yeah, I've, I've touched upon it uh, beforehand. I think the, the crucial point um, to me is really the sense of direction uh, as a society. And, uh, and that's why um, it might look strange that I mentioned this up front. I do so in the book as well. Um, but I think that these pledges, these long-term pledges and plans to reach climate neutrality by a certain date, um, let's say 2050, and uh, which is something that you know, the European Union has done, that the UK has done as well, Japan has done, South Korea has done, uh, and many more countries. Uh, Argentina, to my knowledge, has done as well. Um, the fact of having these long-term pledges, and particularly so if you embed them in law, uh, are very important. And, and, you know, to some, these are only words because you can pledge whatever you want for a long-term horizon. Uh, but I think these are important because they give a sense of to the whole of the economy and society of where uh, of where we're going and what the direction is, and it sends a message to businesses as well and to society as a whole in general of of the, of the idea that you know the the status quo is not an option, and that the the direction is clear, and that you're gonna you're gonna have to think about how you are gonna exist, and particularly I'm thinking as a company. Uh, in uh, 20 years from, from now, 30 years from now, and how you're going to be part of this, uh, of this economy. Uh, and of course, you know, intermediary in, in terms of then achieving it, I was mentioning before more practical uh, steps, which can be uh, regulatory. So saying, you know, certain things will be banned. Uh, in California, for example, a recent announcement that um, internal combustion engine cars will be banned or will not be sold uh, after a certain date uh, can be in line with these type of uh, uh, regulations that send a message throughout the economy. You can do it more with carbon pricing, so slapping a, a cost on, on polluting effectively. Um, but you, you can also get creative. You know, you, you, there's a lot that regulation can do. You can ban uh, single-use plastic, which is something that the European Union has been looking at. Uh, in great detail. Um, and then there's a lot that, crucially, again, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself, but I think that there's a lot that businesses can do as well. And of course, I mean, you're, you know, I'm talking about a plan that involves capitalism. And of course, the private sector has a big role in, uh, in, a, in a capitalist uh, economy. Um, and so I, I think that my impression is that there's a lot that businesses are already doing, and they know the production processes as well. Um, and there, the argument I try to make is because the economy is going in this direction and we've given these clear signals, uh, it is not a matter of, you know, taking a hit or making these expensive, uh, undergoing these expensive costs, but rather these should be seen as investments, something you were mentioning earlier, because if you are a pioneer in some of these new technologies, green technologies, renewables, and, and so on, uh, you are going to be the big ticket selling item uh, soon uh, down the road. And so these should be seen as investment opportunities and not as, uh, as uh, big costs that we're doing because we're nice uh, to uh, the planet or to future generations, but really because we're trying to maximize profits uh, over the medium term already. Right. And, and, and you argue that it's mostly the 
advanced economies that should take a lead in this transition. And I think they are the ones that are actually taking the lead. But, you know, it's been often argued that if rich countries move away from fossil fuels and then um, there's going to be a drop in demand and therefore there's going to be a drop in their price, which will ultimately make them make fossil fuels more attractive for developing countries that, you know, to use them for their own growth. And there's a question of why shouldn't they if everybody else has. Um, but you argue that developing countries should not try to emulate others' growth path, uh, but rather leapfrogging. Um, can, you, can you expand this? And, and, and it's a very interesting concept for us because we're trying to push the, a, a very similar idea um, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, specifically with when it comes to energy access. Uh, this is uh, I can tell that you're working on these topics because it's a brilliant it's a brilliant questions and, and question and clearly one that comes from somebody who is uh, economically minded uh, and it is a risk so I, I, I upfront I will I will I'll say this upfront that this sort of global rebound effect so the fact that if if rich countries use less coal then coal is cheap uh, and then it's uh, it's even better uh, for others to, to try and use it. Uh, on the surface of it, it makes sense. The argument I tried to make there is, look, um, this idea of for um, for poorer sub-Saharan uh, least developed countries that they can, they could, or they should develop following a, a fossil fuel path, and particularly because other countries have done it, so why not them? Um, I think in a way is miss. Uh, is missing a point. And the point is, I'm not trying to say, you know, these countries shouldn't de develop, not at all. But rather, I'm, I'm saying that the window of opportunity to use these technologies uh, is, uh, is closing and is closing fast. And my argument is that to a certain extent, as, as rich countries move ahead, and I have in mind especially uh, Europe, which is a setting that I know best, uh, as they move ahead with the green transition, they're going to put in place barriers, uh, say trade uh, barriers, uh, or a, a check at the border in terms of the carbon content of many of the products that they import. Um, and these are large markets. And it's not only the only Europe that is doing this, but other jurisdictions are looking at that as well. And there were discussions, for example, at the G7 on these type of measures. And, and as the countries, as countries move ahead with this, uh, the, with these type of policies, uh, let's say exporting polluting products abroad is going to be, uh, or which are produced with polluting uh, energy, is going to be harder and harder. And, uh, and as a development economist yourself, you know that the most successful um, growth accelerations uh, that we've seen, let's say, since... Uh, in the post-World post War period, they have all been led by a rapid acceleration in, in exports, typically towards uh, rich countries. This is true for, you know, the Asian tigers. It's true for Japan, uh, post-war Japan. It is true for China, of course, as the, as the main uh, beneficiary of this type of economic model. But these are, these are the, the rapid growth uh, uh, episodes. And and so to to lose that uh, is sort of of uh, 
will, uh, will prevent rapid growth from materializing and rapid development from materializing. And the second, more technological aspect is to say, you know, the green option is expensive right now, and you can think of solar and wind and so on as being more expensive than other options, but that is uh, rapidly going to change. And the more investments are made in, in rich economies, uh, the more you know, technological breakthroughs are going to take place. And as that happens, the, the price of, of these technologies is going to become cheaper and cheaper. And it was the International Energy Agency uh, itself that a few years ago uh, declared you know, solar and, and wind could rapidly become the cheapest energy source in history. And so rapidly, the green option and the cheap option are likely to coincide and countries that are trying instead to uh, jump on the on the fossil fuel energy uh, wagon risk uh, ending up locked into having made big investments and locked into technologies that are rapidly more expensive and crucially also perceived as older, uh, more uh, more worse, uh, more broadly. And so I, I think. I think it's better to try and pursue a, a green growth, green development type of strategy. Definitely. And you give a very interesting example for Sub-Saharan Africa, in which you say uh, there's been leapfrogging when it comes to phones because the region skipped landlines, essentially, and directly adopted, adopted mobile phones, which are, you know, cheaper um, and, and, and more efficient, which... Is, is a great example and, and we're seeing we're currently starting to see the same in the energy sphere in which you know especially when it comes to rural or you know um, very low density um, populated areas that are far away from cities um, when it comes to energy access the business as usual approach of you know grid expansion is prohibitively expensive and um, solar has become the cheapest alternative to electrify these people. So I, I, I thought that was very interesting that you also mentioned that in your book. And I wanted to end with, with a talk about jobs. Um, we are currently, and this also is very close to our work because we're currently um, um, finishing one of our main campaigns, which is Powering Jobs, in which we actually try to um, estimate or provide good numbers of the actual job creation in the decentralized renewable energy sector. Um, and, and part of the motivation for our campaign is that there's a fear that this energy transition will result in job losses. Uh, but you say it won't. So could you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, by scanning through the literature, my impression is that broadly speaking, of course, this is very much a new topic or papers have been coming out en uh, uh, masse only recently, um, trying to empirically estimate these things. And my impression is that in general, uh, it depends on the country, depends on the setting, depends on a variety of things, but in general, um, it seems that there would be a marginally positive impact on jobs uh, from the green transition. And this is due to a variety of reasons, but most notably perhaps because oil and gas sectors are very capital intensive and instead uh, 
while you're switching to renewables, first it is effectively a, a big investment in construction because these are large construction projects, and then you have maintenance, and a lot of this maintenance as well right now needs to happen. Uh, it cannot be automated, and so it it, it is uh, generally uh, job intensive or more job intensive than than the alternative. But I don't think I think that these aggregate or net estimates sort of miss the point, and a point that is much more crucial, which is the fact that overall the impact is going to be marginally positive or relatively small, misses the point that not necessarily these jobs are going to be created in the same place. Uh, And so the point I'm trying to make there is what we're trying to do effectively is to restructure our whole economy. And it is not only a matter of, you know, you focus on, on renewable energy, and that's a crucial aspect, of course, given the importance of energy in the economy, but it is a bit of everything that is going to have to be reinvented, the production of everything, uh, the manufacturing of more or less everything, uh, housing, transport, agriculture, and so on. And so as this happens, uh, comparative advantages will sort of be recast uh, around the world or between companies. Uh, and as that happens, it is not clear that while you're you losing jobs on in, in certain industry, so make it practical, as uh, internal combustion engine jobs are lost, let's say in Germany, which has been a country that has been at the forefront uh, over the past hundred years of the of the car industry, it is not clear that electric cars, electric vehicles, would be built in the same uh, in the same country. It could be that other firms in other countries uh, end up. Uh, being uh, having the, the upper hand on that. And so that's going to be the challenge also for countries in making sure that they catch the green train, let's say, or the train of green uh, transition, or the green industrial revolution, as they call it. Um, because if you do nothing, the risk is that you, you lose jobs, but you don't gain them because you don't develop these new uh, industries in these new green sectors. Great. Ale. Thank you so much for sharing all of these great insights with us. Um, and for listeners around the world, where can we get your book? <laughs> the, the book is in principle available worldwide. Um, so depending on the country, online uh, stores have it. There's, of course, always Amazon as an option, but every country has their own also on providers. Fantastic. I highly, highly recommend it. Thank you all for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, and our platform for energy access knowledge, Peak. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. And if you'd like to support our work, you can make a donation via our homepage. Until next time on the Power for All podcast.